What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the show about album retrospectives with the artists who made them. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? My name is Ryan Rainbow, and today we have a corker for you. And what does a corker mean? I think it's when you use a special kind of baseball bat to knock one out of the park. And that's what we did today because we're speaking with Brent Smith of the band Shinedown for the 10th anniversary of their Roadrunner Records one and done Amaryllis, which of course was not the only Shinedown album, just the only one involved with Roadrunner Records. This being the 10th anniversary, I thought it would be cool to get to kind of look back on this time, which was an interesting time for the band. Uh, Amaryllis was released in all territories outside of the U.S., on Roadrunner, and until they said, nah, back to Atlantic, which, as you know, one of the top five oceans. But this album both met and exceeded expectations, and established some songs that are still strong inclusions in the Shinedown catalog today, and an album in general that I think is looked uh, more fondly over time by fans of the band. But more importantly than that, it established two things. Number one, it solidified the inclusion of now mainstay band members, Zach Myers on guitar, and Eric Bass on bass, who, Carolina, baby, was in the band Deep Field from Charleston, South Carolina, who had a local smash of the In Vogue song, Don't Let Go. What's it gonna be? What's it gonna be? You remember? Oh, do you think that was In Vogue just now? No, that was me. I was the one singing that. You want to hear how they sounded when they sang it? Very punk goes pop. Let's hit it. Yeah, sick. But more importantly than that, more importantly than... Guys, more importantly than probably anything, okay? It produced the Monday Night Raw theme song, Enemies! But getting to that point did not come without hurdles. And singer Brent Smith tells us about what led us to this point and the process of making this album. And I'm grateful for his time. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. With Amaryllis being on Roadrunner, distributed internationally, was that something that you guys were strategically trying to do as far as like getting more into like the hard rock market or was it no strategy at all just kind of worked out that way i know that um rob cavallo who produced it he was 
like ANR at Warner, who at this point owned Roadrunner. So was that a part of it too? At the time that we did uh, what became Amaryllis, he was actually the president of Warner Brothers. Oh, wow. Okay. So he was doing, he had just gotten into Warner Brothers and had been appointed the president uh, right when we started recording Amaryllis. So it was a wild experience. Yeah, the thing about Roadrunner was is that everything from an international standpoint was under the blanket of Warner Music Group, and Roadrunner was a part of all that. Shinedown, it's it's a bit of an anomaly. In some ways, it's almost a little bit Shakespearean when you talk about an artist, a band with their record label, because in the United States, domestically, Shinedown, we've been on Atlantic Records for two decades and are still on Atlantic Records. We're also with the same manager of the last 20 years, Bill McGathy and Indigood Entertainment. But during Amaryllis and what became Amaryllis, there was some changing of the guard um, under Warner and WIA, Warner Electra Atlantic. And so we kind of just fell into this wonderful opportunity that we didn't know was going to be a wonderful opportunity at the time. It was just Warner Brothers uh, internationally had flipped to Roadrunner with us, and we decided to go with Roadrunner instead of staying on Warner. But it was all under the same umbrella. We just wanted to work with different promotion teams, um, different international teams, because we were trying to grow the fan base. And we were really, more than anything, we were trying to grow the acknowledgement of the band internationally, especially in the UK and in Europe. Oh, that would have been a good move then, because Roadrunner just has such a stranglehold in Europe specifically yeah. versus even the United States. If you experience, did you see a boost of popularity in Europe from this? A hundred percent. Yeah. Like it was, it was, it was a massive, massive change. But I think a lot of that too was like the staff was younger. They were actually fans of the band because they didn't really know much about the band. I'm talking about the international team, not the domestic teams or the Canadian teams. Uh, but, uh, you know, all of Europe, all of Central, uh, Central Europe, UK, Australia, South America, majority of Asia, South Africa, you know, India. Um, the unique thing was... They didn't really know a lot about us for the first two albums, the record label. So like Leave a Whisper, Us and Them, they weren't as familiar. And then obviously the juggernaut that became Sound of Madness opened up a massive door um, internationally for us just because of the singles and that we had six of them off that album. So when it was time to go to the fourth record, which is Amaryllis, they were all on board. Because the thing about it is, is in the States, you have... 50 states, and inside of those 50 states, you have multiple cities, and in multiple cities, you can have in upwards to 15 different radio stations, all these multiple formats, and all of that. When you go over there in the UK or Europe, you're dealing with, in that whole conglomerate, you're dealing with maybe five major stations. You have the BBC, the BBC One, BBC Two, you have Kerrang Radio, you have um, Radio One, you also have Planet over there. So it's not as insane uh, as it is in the U.S. with like the multiple towers and the multiple genres and the formats and what have you. But the fact of the matter is, the way that I look at it is, if you're not promoting yourself, if you're not digging to cross formats in any situation, if you've written a record and you've written a record that has a lot of peaks and valleys and there's a lot of ebb and flow, but there's also a lot of plateaus and there's also a lot of peaks and valleys um, musically, because we're not really... 
a band that subscribes to one style. So the dynamic is don't make it about the painter, make it about the painting. Look at the big picture. So they welcomed my thought process uh, in regards to promotion and how I just explained to a lot of them, like, don't take no for an answer. Your job should start when they tell you no, or I don't get the band, or I don't understand this. Put them up against the wall and make them understand. Well, that's cool that it was like a collaborative effort then too, that it's not just a team going and doing it or whatever. You're a part of that process. Yeah. I mean, you have to be. I mean, the thing is, is, and I should preface it, you know, when I say things like put them up against a wall, it, what I mean is focus. Like, I know you've got a wealth of music and everybody and their mother's in here trying to get you to play their music and what have you. You have to separate yourself from everybody else. You have to build relationships and you have to really mean that when you're trying to build out a career for yourself. You have to remember the people that you need to be working with and really forging solid relationships with are the people that are ultimately going to play your music and spread it out to the world. No, that makes sense. It makes sense. And I and I'm happy to hear that from a artist point of view, because I think a lot of times bands when they get signed, I know that this is, you know, your fourth album in, but uh, when they get signed, they get a little bit complacent. They think the work is done when in reality, the work is just beginning, which, you know, better than I the do. The work but... never stops. <laughs> it should never stop. Like, I mean, we're on our seventh record right now. Um, and the record that we just released had the biggest first week debut globally of any Shinedown record at, at any time. It was it was massive. And that was because we had a lot of people, a lot of relationships, a lot of, you know, just an incredible family uh, internationally with our with our label, uh, you know, under Warner Music Group and, you know, in the UK working with Parlophone and and all of that. But um, it's an industry that 1000 percent is built on who wants it the most. It, it you can't phone it in. It, you, you won't survive. I think that the music business is probably one of the most cutthroat industries, it, probably the most cutthroat industry on the planet, even more so than television and the movie industry. It's how bad do you want it? And do you have something to say? And we we definitely had a lot to say on Amarillo's. Um, <laughs> I remember a lot of people were like, you know, the biggest, the, the number one comment that was made about Amarillo's as it was building up to the release uh, the first single off of the the album was a song called Bully. Um, but I remember the build up to the debut week was um, I think that Sound of Madness came out in 08. We sold, I think it was like 48,000 copies for the first week on, on Sound of Madness. But when Amaryllis came out, we sold 104,000 records and we competed against Adele, Lionel Richie, Madonna. It was Madonna, MDMA record, Adele's 21, Lionel Richie, and then Shinedown. That was the that was the debut week for us. And, you know, to be in that category was overwhelming and very humbling. But the number one question everybody asked me was, how are you going to compete with the Sound of Madness? How are you going to top what you did with Sound of Madness? Because Sound of Madness... We had six singles. We crossed five formats, mainstream rock, active rock, alternative, hot AC, and top 40 with Second Chance and with If You Only Knew. And we toured that record for 37 months. We did over 400 and something shows. And 
people were just like, how are you going to top this record, The Sound of Madness? And we just politely said to everybody, we're not. That's that. That's not what it's about. We're not. We pride ourselves on being a band that doesn't write the same record over and over again, and we try not to write the same song twice. So, "Sound of Madness" is "Sound of Madness," and we don't look at it like that. Now, with that in mind, you know, like you just said, so I'll just give an example with Second Chances. I mean, Second Chance, just to put in perspective for people who may not realize or just may not know that they realize, Second Chance is one of those people that, or it's one of those songs. That everyone in the world knows. Like if I go to Walmart, Second Chance is playing. You know, it's in the Marshall's dressing room. It's an inescapable song. Everybody knows this song. So that being yeah. said, you're coming off this record that does huge numbers. It has this song that is omnipotent. So why was Bully the song that you wanted to give people the first taste of what was coming next? What was it about that song that you were like, this is what we want to introduce this record with? The single release for The Sound of Madness was the song. Uh, we started with Devour, and then we went straight to Second Chance. The Second Chance was Cross, and we, we went to the song The Sound of Madness. And then after The Sound of Madness, we did If You Only Knew. And then after If You Only Knew, we did The Crow and the Butterfly. And then we had this huge surprise, um, which was a song called Diamond Eyes, um, that we wrote for the Expendables film with uh, Sylvester Stallone. So technically, the last single that we released off of Sound of Madness was Diamond Eyes. And then there was this kind of, uh, I had moved to California uh, at this point in time. This is 2010. And we began the writing process um, with Dave Bassett, who for people that don't know who Dave Bassett is, Dave Bassett is like the fifth member of Shinedown in the studio. He's been with us since uh, the very, very beginning phase of the writing process for the Sound of Madness. So myself, and Dave and Zach, um, we, the three of us started, you know, up on the hill in Malibu with Dave. And Bully was one of the first things that was written. And I just remember at the time in the news and in media, like the big thing was everyone talking about bullying being an epidemic in schools and just everywhere and i remember seeing all this stuff this is early days of like maybe not the early early days of the internet but this is when social media really started to happen like right around 2010 and everybody was getting a platform because anyone and every everyone could say something we're still in the realm of like websites and chat rooms or things of that nature but it started to move into MySpace and that that type of uh, overview before Facebook and, and what have you. So there were all these stories about this epidemic of bullying in schools and, and, and everywhere. And I just remember thinking to myself, this is ridiculous because bullying has been going on since the dawn of man. And like where I came from and Zach came from, we're both Tennessee born and raised. And how we were raised was... If somebody comes into your personal space, whether it's mentally or physically, uh, and they're attacking you, then you have to attack them back. You don't turn the other cheek. You know what I mean? This is a, it's not a song either about like, oh, maybe one day you'll have a beer with your bully and you'll reconcile. <laughs> Probably not. You know what I mean? Like if this person was coming at you, you have to stand up for yourself. And everybody was talking about use your words and you know we need to diffuse this situation and what have you now you got to remember at the time 
when this was happening and I was seeing this. And a lot of times, look, man, it hasn't changed. 90% of the time, the person that's being bullied the most usually is the bully. And so there's a lot of psychology here. You're also talking to a guy that has been talking about mental health and writing it in songs for the better part of two decades. So I understand the the thought process and the kindness meter that we have now in today's society. It still doesn't take away the fact that if somebody is attacking you or messing with you, if you don't stand up for yourself, they're just going to keep doing it. And you have to find a common ground. And when I grew up, where I grew up, if you didn't stand up for yourself, you would be tortured. Like it, it was going to happen. And I didn't win every fight that I got into, but I can tell you this, nobody messed with me ever again, because the fact of the matter was I was known as an individual in school. Like I wasn't going to back down from anything. I was kind of a loner in school, especially high school. And what was interesting though, is it did kind of, it did kind of transform into that my senior year. A lot of the kids that I went to school with that you know, when we were in elementary school kids, we were all friends in middle school. Everybody had an ugly duckling face, especially me, because you're always changing in middle school. You got hormones kicking and everything. It's a terrible time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when we got into high school, you know, I had to bow up to a lot of people, uh, but they never messed with me ever again. And yeah, man, by senior year, a lot of those same people, we just kind of buried the hatchet and everybody was just cool with each other for the most part, you know, during graduation. But I think that's also because I believed and I knew that I was never going to see these people ever, ever again, <laughs> because I was like, as soon as I graduated high school, I ran like hell, like so that I could start my life. And that's a lot of like what Bully was about. It was about don't be so fixated and don't be so afraid to stand up for yourself, because are you really going to see these people later on in life? You need to start thinking about what your future is actually going to be. What do you want? I've often said to people. You know, don't have a plan B. Whatever your A plan is, do that. Doesn't matter how long it takes you to get there. Just do that. You're, and don't be afraid of your failure. That was another thing about Bully. We tried to make sure that no one, when they heard the song, were going to be desensitized to the fact of, you're going to fail, man. Like, that's part of life. You need failure to learn what to do next time. But your legacy and your life is not going to be built by the foundation of your failure. It's going to be built by the fact that you refuse to give up. And it became an anthem, man, for a lot of people. And it's still an anthem. When I grew up, the people that were bullying, I saw the bullies in my high school had a horrendous, and it came out later, had a horrendous home life, just an awful home life, you know, where they didn't know any better. They were a product of their surroundings and their parents weren't very good people. And and they thrust that on their their child, their kid unknowingly. So then that child at home learns those same mannerisms and those types of attitudes. And then they bring it to school and they're just acting out what their parents or their parents, friends are doing. You know, there were a lot a lot of the bullies that I remember in, in school, um, you know, they had a hard home life. They just did. You know, they had alcoholic parents um drug abusing parents um it wasn't pretty and so that's what i mean by you know a lot of times in certain situations the bully can sometimes be the one that's being bullied the most and it's usually at home 
I was a kid. I was a teenager. Middle school was a bit more like I knew I was just going to have to throw elbows just to to make it through the day. I I, I don't mean to make it sound dramatic, but it it, it was like that because kids can be rough. They can be cruel, man. That, you know, it, it just depends. But, you know, as we got older, you know, and, and, you know, I went into high school and stuff like that. I was just always very secure with who I was. I feel very, very fortunate that ultimately when I was in school, from the moment I entered the earth, all I ever wanted to do is what I'm doing now. Like I always had a vision. I always had a drive. A, a friend of mine a long time ago once told me, you don't pick the music. The music picks you. And I kind of feel like that was my path and is my path. And I take it very seriously. So I didn't necessarily have the, what am I going to do after college? Or where am I going to go to college? Or what am I going to do after school? I I had a fake ID when I was 14 years old and I was playing in clubs on the weekend. So, I mean, I just, I always was driven, you know, down a certain road. I'm still on that road. I will say this that it has the hardest line of the whole album. When you say okay. to this bully, no one's going to cry on the very day you die. I mean, that's, that's hard as hell. I know you're saying that maybe you reconcile later, but I don't think you are reconciling after that. In that song, I'm not talking about somebody that wants to reconcile. I'm talking about somebody that doesn't wish any ill will on you, doesn't wish harm on you, but isn't going to think twice. You I just know. think that line is tough as hell. It's just like, this is the meanest thing I could think of to say to somebody. It's pretty mean. It's, it's, I, I think back on it now and, and I'm like, you know, I, and that was what I had to defend in the beginning of when that, believe me, man, Zach was terrified of that being the first single, you know, and he, and he wrote it, you know, um, and he was just like, what are we doing? Like, this is a hard, like, and I'm like, it's the right one, man. It's the right song. But the thing was, is I, I remember people asking me about that line in particular. And um, the word that got used a lot was, it's a bit sinister for you all. And I said, depends on what you mean by sinister. Was it sinister what happened to the individual that the bully messed with every single day and the types of situations where they tortured the person every single day? Hey man, they they passed away or, or or what have you, and all you could remember is them beating the shit out of you. And the thing about that is, is I would rather be honest about that inside of the human condition. You know, got to remember something too. This is a moment in time. That record was written in ten thousand uh, two thousand and ten, and at the time, man, people were just trying to make the whole bully thing like it was some kind of new thing or it was like some epidemic and all this and i'm like this has been going on since human beings existed but everybody was talking about you know turn the other cheek and just let them you know just get through the situation and i was like no that that's not going to build this person up this that's not going to help them for the real world you know they got to stand up for themselves even if they get their ass kicked you know what I mean? Because I guarantee you, if you stand up for yourself, even if you don't win the fight, but you survive, that's why at the end of the video, it says survive. I guarantee you that that individual will never mess with you ever again. And if anything, if you keep doing it long enough, there's going to be a moment in time where 
that person's gonna snap. Yeah, like in a in a Christmas story when uh, my man Alfie, after he's done licking poles or whatever, does he lick the pole? Anyway, he uh, he goes off on that bully at the end. Yeah, exactly. There you go, man. And just wailed on him. Everybody has a breaking point, man. And that's a lot of what bully represented was the breaking point. The symbolism of who we are as a band has always been built around. So it's the reason I named the band Shinedown. You have to fall in a hole in life to learn how to get out of it. And, you know, it's the yin and the yang. Everything is built on balance. So everything that's good has a little bit of bad and everything that's bad has a little bit of good. It's the yin and the yang. When it comes to the human condition, I celebrate it. I do believe that people need to have empathy for each other. I do believe that people need to take care of one another. I've often said this, and I truly believe it. I do believe that human beings are inherently good and that we do want to help one another. But there's always going to be an issue, no matter what. There's always going to be something sinister. There's always going to be something that does not have your best interests in mind. And you have to truly look at your peripheral in this life and in this existence and in our reality to protect not only yourself, but the people around you and the life that you want for yourself. And as a society, we have to work with one another in order to move forward because having a future together means that we have to work with each other and we have to work together. Well, speaking of working together, so Amaryllis is kind of like a zeitgeist moment for Shinedown. Three albums before it, three albums have come since it, and yeah. it's the first album with the current lineup that we more or less know today with Zach, who you mentioned earlier, being afraid yeah. of that song being released, and Eric. Yeah. And uh, and like you mentioned, it also has some familiar faces with uh, Dave Bassett, who not only uh, helped write songs on Sound of Madness, he plays instruments on that album as well, right? Yeah, and uh, Rob Cavallo is the producer for both records as well. So this is kind of uh, leaving the the old shine down behind a little bit and evolving into the new one. So how was approaching writing this record different from doing the Sound of Madness with those new and old pieces in play? One of the biggest thing was, you know, Eric and Zach solidified themselves on the Sound of Madness album in the touring cycle for that. And I mean, I have to be very, very upfront about this. Had it not been for Zach and Eric um, in regards to myself and Barry Kirch, um, I would not be talking about Shinedown with you today. People that maybe don't understand the whole backstory of the band, because a lot of people just know us. Some be, I mean, some of our audience just knows us from Attention, Attention and Planet Zero. The thing is, is that I would like more than anything is I have a massive amount of respect for the estate of Shinedown coming out of 2001 in Jacksonville, Florida, because that's where the band was born. Um, And no disrespect to any of the players that were in the band on the first two albums, but the band that it was always meant to be is the band that it is today. And that has a lot to do with Eric and has a lot to do with Zach. This is the band that it was always meant to be. I think with Amaryllis, it was such an exciting moment in time. I was able to also bring Eric in um, and Zach in as songwriters, not only finding out that they had the 
ability to do it, but that I connected with them at the same time. Obviously, um, we worked through a lot of it on, you know, on top of the hill in Malibu with Dave Bassett, but we were all together during this phase. Rob, once again, Rob Cavallo, who produced The Sound of Madness, also produced Amaryllis, and he had just begun with Warner Music Group, like I said, just became the president. So it was a lot of, he was having to split up his time between having certain duties there. And then, you know, he would come in sometimes at five o'clock at the studio and he'd work till three in the morning. He'd go three or four days with, you know, work. he'd go three or four days working off of like three hours of sleep. You know, it was pretty impressive to watch. But he also, he put a lot of faith in me because of Sound of Madness and the time that we worked together. And there's a person really instrumental in the, the process of not only the Sound of Madness, but also the process of Amaryllis with Rob Caballo. And that's a gentleman by the name of Doug McKean, who recently we lost him. He passed away. And Doug McKean has been the Doug McKean was the engineer of the Sound of Madness. He was the engineer of uh, Amaryllis. Um, he also uh, engineered Threat to Survival, but he was also the engineer for Attention Attention, and he was also the A engineer on the Planet Zero. But going into the work with Rob Cavallo and Doug, Doug gave me such confidence on the Sound of Madness album vocally because a lot of the vocals were done when it was time to record them for the record. It was just me and Doug. And because I never forget, Rob was like, you don't need me in there to do the vocals. You know exactly what you're doing. Go for it. And that was intimidating. But Doug was a huge part of that confidence that I needed um, in the studio. And he did it tenfold uh, with Amaryllis, but I was a little bit more seasoned. I was a bit more of a producer mind. Me and Doug were working really, really close with one another on this because sometimes Rob would come in at different hours and then he'd want to review everything that we just did. All of his notes, 90% of the time were valid and we actually would change the things that he wanted. And you know, he didn't coast through the, the record making Rob, but we had to be really, really quick um with with how we were doing certain things but with the band and i remember too like rob really pushed barry like really pushed barry on the drums on amaryllis on sound of madness it was a little different for whatever reason but rob just had a level that he wanted barry to go to and barry got there but barry but rob worked him man like really worked him on amaryllis you know, Rob working with, you know, Eric and finding out that Eric was uh, way more gifted than maybe Rob thought he was. And, and Eric just showing that each and every day and Eric being a total pro, letting Rob produce, learning what Rob was doing, watching Doug McKean. You know, it's one of the reasons why, you know, the last two Shinedown records, Eric was like, Let's call Doug and see if he'll do it. And Doug usually would work in Los Angeles. He never would go outside LA. He came to Charleston and worked with us. And, you know, just having that camaraderie, everyone learned so much about each other on the Amaryllis record. We really did. It was a, um, it was a joy, man. It was, it, it really was a joy making that record. It was a lot of work, but it was a joy. And why did you call it Amaryllis? Did the title come before the song or did you name it after the song? Named it after we wrote the song. An amaryllis in certain parts of the desert will grow 
Um, and uh, it's interesting because an amaryllis, it only grows at certain times of the year and it'll grow in the desert. And at the time of the year when the, when, when the flower grows, nothing else around it is growing. Like it's just, it's, it's just desolate. Nothing's alive, but this flower will come up out of the cracks in the, in the desert. It's very strange, you know, through adversity, it will bloom. And, uh, that was kind of the spirit of the record, you know, through adversity, you know, this record is going to be born. That's why we named the record that because we went through a lot of different titles, but that was just simple. And I thought it was like for such an intense record, I thought it was a unique name. Well, I definitely think it's a unique name. And if you didn't know that it's a flower, then you have this like very like cult like looking imagery on the cover. And then the flower based is the... off the based off the mandala. Oh, OK. That makes sense. And then yep. the actual flower is the disc, which is cool, almost like a reveal of what it is. But amaryllis even right. sounds like this, like like you're casting a spell or something, you know, and then it's got that. Kind of. Yeah. It's a little, you know, I look back at it. It's got a little D&D going on, <laughs> little Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Did you work with somebody uh, individually on that uh, that album cover? Or you just found somebody and were like, hey, I want to kind of base it on the mandala and I wanted to have these certain features and qualities and how did you even find uh david harrigan the third to make this for you he worked on the sound of madness album cover too and there were so many album covers for the sound of madness like it was insane how many album covers there were for the sound of madness and once again the universe is real you just have to allow yourself to listen to it i remember with sound of madness the whole principle, because it was all of this, cl not clutter, but all the album covers were really busy. Like everything was just really busy. And he sent over, he sent uh, the, the, the artist at Atlantic, um, he sent over this white, this, this, this white page with a bunch of birds, which is like a ton of them. And um, the interesting thing about that was, uh, our tour manager at the time, who is actually after 13 years come back to the Shinedown organization is our tour manager now, Mr. Ed Baker. Ed was with us and he was like looking at all these album covers and he saw this white one with these with all these birds and everything. And he was just like, you know what? What if you took away all these birds? And at the time, Nick Perry was in the band. He had come in as a fifth as a fifth uh, member and uh, he left a year later. Ed was like, you know what you should do? You should just get, you should just get five, which ultimately is four because it was always meant to be four piece. Um, but he said, you just need four. You just need the birds representing each one of you. And so we told them about that. And then there was this kind of font that Shinedown had been written where it kind of faded off to the back, kind of like typewriter. And I remember it was, it was all about simplicity. And if you know the album cover, it's now considered kind of a famous album cover because it's this stark white album and it just says shine down it's got the four birds and each one of us are you know the birds and in the bottom right hand corner and like a typewriter font it just says the sound of madness so it was very simple amaryllis we kind of nicknamed it the kitchen sink because that album we threw everything and the kitchen sink at it like there's so much glorious production on amaryllis there's 24 piece orchestras 
There's a 10-piece horn section. There's tons of synth. There's layers upon layers of guitars. There's stacks of vocals. Like, it's just, you know, it's very epic. Everything is big, you know. Um, there's choirs, all these different things. So it was, we nicknamed that record The Kitchen Sink. And so the album cover had to have all of these elements in it. And we actually wanted the album cover to do the opposite of what Sound of Madness was. Sound of Madness was kind of stark. And we wanted this to be more busy, more intricate, more like detail oriented, where you you looked at the album cover and you were finding new things. Every time you looked at it, you saw something new. Yeah, that's really cool. I I love that album cover for Amaryllis. I mean, like you said, of course, the Sound of Madness album cover is almost like a, it almost looks like it should be like a self-titled album cover. You know what I mean? Like how like Metallica yeah. has like the black album and it's just the snake, you know, you yeah. got the, the birds. But um, with Amaryllis, you know, it's got, like I said, it's got that very like interesting and like intimidating artwork on the front. Then it's almost like softens as you open it. And you're like, oh, it's got the flower and everything yeah and the whole fr i we're known for making the phrases when you open the records up and uh you know i believe that was uh don't be delicate be vast and brilliant that's right and which is a tattoo i've seen a million times since then so i mean that resonated with yep. people yeah definitely but as far as the kitchen sink aspect, I was going to ask you this, and well, I'll ask you now. Uh, you know, it does have all those things you mentioned, all those elements, the orchestra, the horn section. The last song has choir. Like, choir. It's got like church bells or handbells or something. Um, yeah, it's got bells. It's got timpanis. It's got a kid's choir. All <laughs> those kids kicked. Dude, those kids kicked ass. The day that we did all that for Bully, those kids, like they floored me because they had the song and there was, I think there had to have been, there was like 20 of them, like 20 kids. And they ranged from seven years old to like 16. And my God, man, they were just, when that came back in the speakers, you heard because they put them up on risers and they're all out there and the conductor, you know, she's doing all the parts and everything. And, Dude, every single nerve in my body, every single hair on my body, it was crazy. Like when they all like just went for it and they were going for it, man, because the, the composer was so great um, or the vocal director. She was so great because she told the kids, even the young ones, like everyone there, like what this song is about. She was like, it's visceral. You got to get you got to get tough. You got to get mad. Like, you got to want it. And these kids were, it was so awesome watching these kids, like, strutting and singing this song. It was so cool. That sounds awesome. And that's even cool that they were, like, being produced and directed right before, like. They were. And they were all strutting and stuff into the mic. Like, I mean, they, they were, like, each take, it got better and better and better. It was really cool to watch. Well, things like that, were those things that maybe you wanted to try to do previously on something like Sound of Madness, but you got to kind of uh establish confidence in the the budget and the label and everything with sound of madness to be able to do those things or those were all just independent of each other like was there something before where you were like oh i wish we could have had you know a 20 piece orchestra and a horn section but maybe when we're more proven to answer your question with amaryllis we 1000 percent knew what we wanted to do on that record like we went at it not because we had a bigger budget necessarily, um, but we just knew what we wanted to do and what we wanted it to sound like. But The Sound of Madness was such a, it was a very defining record because I'll never forget Rob looking at me. He chose to do that record 
You got to remember something else, too. He had just done American Idiot and won Grammy of the Year for Record of the Year. He had just finished The Black Parade by um, My Chemical Romance, and he did Sound of Madness next. And so I'll never forget him sitting down with me because I met him and I didn't have any songs, really. I only had a few. And he was like, go write me some songs, man, and maybe we'll see each other down the line. And I never thought I'd see the guy ever again. Nine months later, uh, I'm in Hidden Hills or I'm in Capitol Studios getting ready to do a record with him. And I'll never forget, man. He 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 spent so much time with me. You know, it was different with Amaryllis, but with Sound of Madness, it was 18 hours a day for mm, Jesus, eight months. And he was there every step of the way. But I'll never forget him saying to me, you haven't found your sound. The first two records aren't bad. They're just not who you are. I'm here to find out what that is. And um, you hear that record, but you go back and listen to Sound of Madness. You go back and listen to Sound of Madness and Amaryllis back to back. You know, it's a ride. There's nothing I would change about Legal Whisper. There's a couple things I would change about us and them. But then again, it got me to where I am today, so probably not. I wouldn't change anything about Sound of Madness, and I wouldn't change anything about Amaryllis. But Amaryllis, there was a freedom to that record, definitely, because we can do whatever we want. That was the other thing that Sound of Madness gave us also. that gave us the freedom to kind of be, we've proven ourselves. So it was like, you're not going to, it's not about beating that record. If you want to listen to Sound of Madness, go listen to it, you know? It's there forever. But Amaryllis, there was just this incredible freedom with that album. Like, let's try everything. Let's do whatever we want to do. Like the song, I'm Not Alright, that song did not come alive until we put the horns on it. And I remember looking at Rob when he said he wanted to put horns on it. I was kind of like, I don't know, man. That might be going in a... And he was like, trust me. And I'm like, You think of like right. a ska song or something? Like you thought it was going to sound like the Bob I didn't know songs? what he was going to do. <laughs> I didn't know what he was going to say. You know, I was thinking horns and it's like, you know, that song, I came up with that little guitar lick that created the song, which was like... It's kind of like happy and like carnival-y, you know, type of thing. And then it has, it already had that, you know, dun, 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 drum beat and everything. And that movement, like, I like to stare at the sun. It had like, it was already kind of like happy. And what I wanted to do was give it an edge. Rob comes in and he goes, I know how to give it the edge, but you got to trust me. And I'm like, I'm excited, man. What is it? He was like, we're going to put horns on it. And I'm like, what? Like. Because I thought of, like, yeah, maybe. Like, I thought, like, like, I just had a different, like, thing in my brain of what it was going to turn into. And I was just like, oh, no. You know, he's going to make it, like, he's going to turn it into, like, a parody. It's not going to do what he wants it to do. And then I heard them do it. And I was just like, once again, all the hair on my arms stood up back of my neck when I, those horn, it was, but it was the horn parts that were picked. because watching rob because it was a 10-piece horn section and um watching those guys 
build that out, once again, was something I'd never seen. Ten horns, and they're all playing in at they're all playing at once, but they're playing different sections and different octaves, and then they stack it. It's the same thing when we do like the 24. There's a reason why it's a 24 piece orchestra on sound or uh, on second chance and like why you hear it on I'll follow you and why you hear it on uh, if you only knew and you do the 24 and then they stack the octaves. So like 24 pieces turns into like a hundred. It was the same thing with the horns. You know, you took the 10, the, the 10 piece and you do the one octave and then you do the fifths and then you do the fourths and then, you know, then you'd stack the higher octaves on top of that. And then when you would start to hear it all come back, it was just like, it's very, very, it's, it's kind of breathtaking. It's overwhelming. And hearing the song without it, and then all of a sudden hearing it with it. Yeah, because I can't imagine that song without the horns. Like the horns are a huge part. I, and I remember the first time I heard it, because, you know, into the album, you've already heard the orchestra on a couple tracks. So when the horns came out, I was like, yo, they got horns on here because that's like almost like a, I feel like Howard Benson always shoehorns horns into like, like rock songs. Like it'll be like theory yeah. of a dead man. It'll be like, Oh, here's a horn section on the song. And yeah. so uh, when I first heard them come in, I was like, okay, let's see where this goes. And it does it. It almost makes it sound. I know you mentioned an edge, but almost like darker, but the song is already so upbeat that it doesn't, you know, it, it evens it out. It levels it out. So it doesn't go to that point of, uh, of parody. Yeah. And the rhythms change four different times in the song, how they do it. Like, I remember like when the bridge happens and I'm not all right and it goes, whoa, I don't care if you apologize, I can't lie. I remember the horns go in right before I sing that and they change rhythm and it's like, dun, 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 dun. And then I sing, and then that swirling guitar comes at the back half of it before, like it launches into the last chorus. And because uh, it goes, I can't lie, no, I can't lie, and it holds. And then it's like, I like the when it comes back in, those horns start going, dun, 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 and it changes octaves, and it just makes it like it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, speaking of the upbeat nature of that song in particular, you know, the album opens with Adrenaline and Sound of yeah. Madness opens with Devour. And I'm sorry I keep on juxtaposing the two, but I do think that they're like, no, it's important. The same story. You can't really have one without the other. Those two records kind of are important for each other. All right. I'm glad that you agree with that then, because I was like, I, I know he wanted to, we were going to talk about this one record. I keep on bringing up this other one, but no, it's okay. You kind of <laughs> have to, with, with the, those two records particularly, you can't really have one without the other. So devours what opens Sound of Madness, which is a very like dark and I'm going to use your word sinister, or I guess their word, mm. right? They were calling. It. Yeah, <laughs> got a very mm-hmm. it has a very sinister tone to it. It's a heavy hard rocking track, which is a staple of the Shine Down catalog. You guys usually come out swinging on the records, so we try. <laughs> <laughs> no different with Adrenaline, other than Adrenaline seems like more of a empowered, anthemic, upbeat major chord kind of thing versus the juxtaposition yeah. of devour. And I think that sets the tone for Amaryllis as a whole, because uh, Amaryllis does just seem um, almost like the, the result of the sound of madness, the sound of madness is you going through it. Right. And then a, Amaryllis feels like the other side of it. Like I made it coming out it. of it. Yeah. Coming out of the storm. Yeah. You know, it's like um, you couldn't have said it any better. Art imitates life. Life imitates art. You know, once again, life will teach you a lot if you can if you can live long enough and um you know we're not promised tomorrow and you know 
everything that Sound of Madness was because there were so many things against us on that record. Like, you know, there were so many things going on. And for a band with two records, and then here they come with this album where they've released two original members and brought in these other two individuals. Like a lot of people, I remember with The Sound of Madness, they were like, this band is over. Like this band is done. And it could not have been any further from reality. And we've always been like that, man. Like that whole record was like base camp at the biggest mountain you've ever witnessed in your life. Whereas an individual looking at it, at least for me, I was like, there is absolutely no way I can climb this by myself. But if I do it with my family and I do it with the people that I'm meant to be with, I know if we do it together, there's not a mountain that we can't get to the top of. And that's kind of like how Shinedown lives our lives, you know, with this band is you keep climbing those mountains and you get to the top. You take a minute, hug each other, say good job, and then you go find a bigger mountain. But Sound of Madness was um, all about coming out of the, you know, out of the fire, you know, coming out of the storm you know, <clears throat> surviving through all those different things and utilizing these songs that had, you know, a rebirth in a lot of ways and a defiance in a lot of ways, just a refusal to to die, you know. And Amaryllis was more of the awareness that as long as you stay together, as long as you learn from each other, as long as you, no matter what, it's got to be a democracy and you've got to do it together. But there's, we felt unified truly as a band. Um, and it's been that way and continues to get stronger and stronger every record that we, we put out. But Amaryllis was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, just like the flower, man, you know, we, we were able to bloom. You mentioned um, Diamond Eyes being the last single off of Sound of Madness. Mm -hmm. Right before, uh, I guess a year before Amaryllis comes out, 2011, the week of my birthday, I walk into the Georgia Dome. It's WrestleMania 27. And what is just pumping? What's just pumping through the speakers? Yeah. I mentioned that because on this album, Enemies yeah also sick is the monday night raw theme song were you into wrestling growing up though you said you like jake roberts yeah but i'm old school man like i have such a respect a deep deep respect for all of the wrestlers uh, today and past but i came from the wwf i came from you know brutus beefcake barber I came Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, um, Mr. Perfect, Ultimate Warrior, the lovely Elizabeth, you know, Macho Man, like the, kind of the, <clears throat> the golden age of, of wrestling. Obviously, I got massive respect for Dwayne Johnson, John Cena, you know, all those, those cats and what they go through and, you know, what they do to their bodies and just how incredible of athletes they are. But like I had all the WWF toys, like growing up in the eighties and what have you, everything that like tore apart the rut. Like I had all that stuff, man. I would like play act 
like WrestleMania downstairs in my basement with like pillows and stuff like that, man. I did all the moves, jumped off that. Like <laughs> I loved all that stuff when I was a kid, man. So when we, we've had every single single that we've released as a band and we've released 29 singles, pretty much every single that we released the, the WWE used of, of, of all our records. And that organization has always just been so good to us and respectful to us and we have a lot of respect for him man so you know i got nothing but love for him have you ever gone out to uh any of their events or anything that you are the theme song for and get to hear it blasting on the speakers like i did at wrestlemania 27 i never have had an opportunity to go see a real match they have wanted to have us come in and play for them but there's so many it's it would always be logistical nightmare because we were always on tour and like trying to get there and then get back to tour and all this we just never had the ability to do it or it just didn't you know the timing was wrong or what have you uh but hopefully one day i'll get to to, to watch one yeah no you you gotta go to a match man especially you gotta play one we gotta cancel a week of shows or something and make it happen just, just, for the- just cancel them ahead of time yeah just leave them and then just cancel and be like, I've got to go to a I've got to go to a wrestling match. They'll understand. Send out a little email, guys. You won't believe what happened. Um yeah, I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> you uh you have an interesting vocal cadence in Nowhere Kids, where on the pre-chorus you kind of like do like more like a gruff shout where you're telling mm-hmm. if they want to tell and you use some foul words. Yeah, man. I I drop a F bomb. But do you remember that vocal take? Do you remember uh, deliberately trying to do it differently for the for that? Do you know what I'm even talking about? The like couple lines before yeah. the chorus. Okay, I 1,000% remember doing that. That was a song that was written by myself and Eric Bass and Dave Bassett. And um, originally, that section was just an interlude, and it had kind of like a you know more of a just a an inflection yeah like a yeah or something yeah and you build and build and build and i was just like that's not cool and um i'm like that's there's got to be something else but it was a long section so and i didn't really want to sing something because like the 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 melody and the verses are um so it was had a melody but it was kind of like quick spoken and then it just had this breakdown with four on the floor with the kick drum and then it goes into the chorus and it was just like me trying to make some noises into the chorus or what have you because it was like is it too many words like are we trying to pack too much into it and then i literally just said just turn the mic on. Let me. Get, I'm, I'm gonna try something. And I just remember ran in there, and I didn't have anything written down or whatever. And it, I they played it a couple of times. I I kind of hummed some stuff, and then it just popped into my head. And then it, they played it one time, and I just was, if it's going all out, then get them up, get them up. And if they, and I just there it was, and I just did it like a couple of times. And in the control room, I walked back in there, and they were like, that was awesome, man. Just do it again. You know, so that's how it happened. Yeah, it's sick. It's like an extra aggressive part, even especially because you're say, you know, you have like an aggressive tone to it, doing the F word. <laughs> so, I mean, it makes yeah. it sound even like tougher. It's like, it's really cool. I really like the, the dynamic. Yeah, I, have a, I have an interesting relationship with uh, cuss words, which is um, I don't believe that they are necessary. 
90% of the time for this band. I don't believe they're necessary. Um, but for the other 10%, it's gotta be like no other word can go there. Like I'm that like specific about it. But the cool thing about that, because I, in general, like I certainly don't have a problem with hearing those words, but I think that it makes it more intense because of the fact that you don't ever use them. So when you do it, like sticks out, it's like, oh, wow, he's he's going in. Unity is another single on the album and uh, another favorite. Is that a song you guys still play to this day? 100%. We don't, we very rarely do we take that out of the set because we wrote it for the audience. Eric didn't use on Amaryllis, did not use that many basses on that record he only used like two or three um they just tuned them differently but eric is a savant so eric is probably a bass player last like because like on stage eric sings 70 percent of the set with me um because he sings a lot of the harmonies he also plays um seven different basses with six different tunings he plays two different acoustic guitars all in different tunings he plays piano full scale and then he plays MIDI piano um, on things. Um, and the guy is a literal, just a, an acrobat on stage. Um, and same thing in the studio. I mean, he plays 11 different instruments fluidly. Um, he has perfect pitch, which drives him crazy. And uh, yeah, man, that dude's a savant. Was Unity one of the earlier songs that you wrote as well for the album? It seems like maybe. Yeah. We wrote, um, I remember we were working on I'll Follow You, just me and Eric, and then myself and Dave and Eric. We wrote Enemies together. We wrote Unity together. Um, we wrote Nowhere Kids together. I remember Through the Ghost and Bully were the first like two that were written. And then Miracle came next. Adrenaline was towards the back half of the writing process. And then me and Eric wrote, uh, wrote I'll Follow You on a whim towards the back half of the, the recording process and brought it to everybody. And they were just like, yeah, man, like we got to put this on. So you were already in the middle of recording the album and when you wrote I'll Follow You? Yep. And is that a common thing where you'll be working on a record and something will just hit you because of maybe making those songs? If it comes, man, you you you, you don't ignore it. You know, if it, if it hits you, man, you got to push record. Well, one of my favorite moments on the album is on Unity, kind of that pre-chorus, the if I told you that... It's so impactful for me. It really grabs me. And then, you know, it goes into the put your hands in the air. It yeah. just it, almost it feels like a almost like a like praise and worship or something. You know, it really I mean, got your hands in the air. I'm just really feeling compelled. I'm having a religious experience when I hear it is what I'm trying to tell you. I tell everybody I wrote that part specifically for Lord because she was like, I'm tired. Of, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tired of getting told to put my hands up in the air. So there. <laughs> in that one song of hers right right just like i wrote this for you dear (laughs) well hey that makes sense because i feel like um you're talking to the lord but it's just one lord in particular yeah man no that that whole song was dedicated to the audience like 
I'm very, very focused about one particular thing, and I do not uh, mince words with it. We have literally the greatest fan base on the planet Earth. And in our view, we only have one boss in Shinedown. It just happens to be everybody in the audience. So Unity really was written for them. It was written for the crowd. It was written, you know, when we say, you know, put your hands in the air. If you hear me out there, that's for them to like, let us know, you know, that they're there, that, that they hear us and that, you know, that we're not going to leave them behind. You know, they didn't leave us behind. They've given us a platform to be ourselves and we want them to do the same. So literally Unity was, was written for the audience. Are there songs on this album that you guys don't really play that you miss? Or when you go back and listen to this album, you're like, oh, man, that was a really good song. We should have kept that around more. Yeah, I mean, we try to really look at um, we were going to do a deep dive tour and we had it all slated and it was all those album cuts. It was a whole show on just the deep cuts. There was no singles. Um, we didn't get a chance to do it. We rescheduled all those shows and have played them since, but we had to do them, you know, because everybody wanted to hear like the songs. So, I mean, there's certain songs that, I mean, if they're not in the set right now, then they're not necessarily on our radar. We'll get to them eventually. We'll play them. You know, when we like, the cool thing is, is like when you have an anniversary, like we're having right now with Amaryllis, I can guarantee you at some point in time, this year i don't know when it's going to be but because it's the 10 year anniversary you, there will be a show where we play the album front to back but like on attention attention man we played black soul when that record came out a bunch and then we just kind of stopped playing it because we had to play other stuff i missed that song um we've never played special live um i definitely want to do that we never played dark side off attention attention live i definitely want to do that like on threat to survival there's a song called Outcast that we never got to play live that I definitely want to play live eventually. There's a song called It All Adds Up on that. So, yeah, man, there's always like these deep cuts that you want to play um, off every record. And you just kind of have to figure out what the tour is asking for. And you got to serve the people. Are there favorite songs on Amaryllis you have that aren't the singles? I know there's a lot of singles on there, but something like Nowhere Kids, where that's probably one of my favorite songs, probably because of how tough it sounds. Is there things like yeah. that that uh, you have a relationship with on here? Probably Miracle. Like that Miracle was like one of those songs that was like, it was written in a really good time in my life. And you got to hear it in the song. That song's about a, a few different people. And we don't ever really get a chance to play that song uh, live ever, but um, we did play it live on the Warner Sound. You can look that up on YouTube if you just type in "Shine Down" the Warner Sound. We played it live in Henson Studios along with Bully. We did we did a version of um, "I Feel the Earth Move" uh, by Carol King there, but we played a, a live version of "Miracle" on that. But yeah, man, I mean, Amaryllis is one of those. I really kind of, on that album particularly, man, I like everything on that record. Is there a particular right. tour when Amaryllis came out that you remember really uh, enjoying and kind of making you feel validated about the album that you had just made? Even though I know you are saying you weren't feeling as much pressure as maybe people thought you were, was there a, a tour that you did after that record came out where you were like, okay, we definitely made the, the right choice. We got the, the people with these songs. They're singing them back to us. Yeah, there were two. 
out of the gate, we got the opportunity to be the headliner for a festival that was going on back in the day. Uh, it was called Uproar. And it was a huge, like, 15-band rolling circus. Um, all the people that put on Warp Tour and uh, Mayhem Tour. And, you know, this was in, uh, this is 2012. 43 shows, 15 to 20,000 people a night. And we were the headliner. And it was the very first tour that um, we, uh, not because anybody wanted us to do it because of the money, but it was the first tour where we really went in and really, Amaryllis was the, the record and the touring cycle for us that we became a band that started to really engage in production. Once again, making a record that was throw everything in the kitchen sink at it. We were looking at, okay, now let's build it. Let's start building out what does this band, what, what is this band capable of doing live? Um, the other thing about that was I had lost 70 pounds from, uh, from, from 2000 and late 2010, early 2011. To by the time we got out, uh, we started touring Amaryllis in 2012. I had lost 70 pounds because I had, I was big during Sound of Madness. I was a big dude. And I had just kind of let myself go even more after the cycle on Sound of Madness. I just remember looking at myself in the mirror. You know, I had this big, beautiful house in California. And I'm just looking in the mirror, though, going, this isn't going to work. Like, I, I looked really bad. I was really unhealthy. And so that kind of began my journey um, into fitness and, you know, what I've adopted every single day to today that I still keep with me. Mental fitness is a priority with me, but the physical fitness is that too. So you had to understand something like people saw this. When we first started playing, people literally thought that they had replaced the singer. Like people, because I hadn't really shown myself in over a year and a half. Is this when so you when cut I, your hair, too? I still have long hair. I still have long hair. During Uproar, I had long hair. I cut my hair. I cut my hair right after, right before the I'll Follow You video. So um, it was probably, probably the beginning of 2013. But people literally, even with my hair in a ponytail, because on Sound of Madness, I didn't put my hair back. I just let it all hang. And I was always wearing a black leather jacket to hide my gut and things like that wearing glasses and stuff like that. You know, it was kind of, you know, it was iffy. But yeah, that's when the aesthetic all changed. Like I was, I remember telling myself, I'm like, nobody wants to see a front man with his gut hanging over his belt. Like this isn't going to work. I can't make this kind of music and not be the guy. You know what I mean? So I had to choose that for myself. So when we came out, dude, we were a machine. The, the workout program Insanity uh, with Sean T had come out and dude, the whole band, they started watching me do it. I remember the first time Zach watched me like do the workout. He was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm working out. He was like, I, I know, but what are you? And it went from like the beginning of 2012. We started the tour for Amaryllis overseas. We started in Europe actually. Um, and uh, within six months of that, everybody all four of us every day like clockwork we were doing insanity together so like we were working out together every day like all four of us we we were a machine 
just in the way that we looked and the way we were playing, everything was just firing on all cylinders. And then so on top of that, too, we started to really look at the aesthetic and the production and what we wanted to do. And it was the beginning of our love with um, pyrotechnics because we're known as a band that blows a lot of shit up. The love that we had had for years and years and years as teenagers and, and kids watching Kiss and Rammstein and just all these different bands. But we're a band that pyro is is needed, in my opinion. Some bands don't need it. And you don't do it. It's, it's always about the music and it should always be about the songs. But I don't look at pyro as a gag. I look at pyro as art and a creative expression and moments of a song live. So pyrotechnics are a huge part of what we do live. So that was like the first time that we really incorporated the video elements and the lighting elements being much bigger and really honing into what does this band have to have to say live. And it wasn't just about hanging a backdrop up in you know, whatever park hands you had. Like we started really bringing production with us. Uh, to the dismay of some of the people in management that were like, you're going to spend how much money? <laughs> you know, and it's like, hey, man, you got to spend money to make it. And were there, you know, you mentioned these other bands that uh, had huge pyro and things like that. Were there bands that were part of, and if there's not, I don't want you to feel like you have, have to say okay. there are, but if there were there bands on like the Roadrunner roster that you were into when you were younger, like a, like a Sepultura or, I mean, Kiss was actually around this time too they were on roadrunner but uh were there bands growing up that that were like these kind of more heavy metal acts that you were inspired by when we were on sound of madness and we were touring one of the last tours that we did as an opener before we headlined uh was the nickelback tour for the dark horse record and dude i learned everything about pyrotechnics and staging lighting video work like crowd work like how you bit all from nickelback those guys were so forthcoming and so gracious and so thoughtful and so like you weren't i would always i'm not trying to bother you i'm probably asking too many questions aren't i they're like no man what's up they were the dude they were the greatest they were so cool and they're they're friends of ours to this day i have an immense amount of love and respect for chad because he's a great human being I learned so much about like big, not just not production. I learned about big production. There's a difference. Like there's there's a difference between a club, theater, an arena, and a stadium. These dudes, like that Dark Horse record, man, that that album cycle that they did, and we did forty something shows with them. I remember it was Sick Puppies, then us, then Breaking Benjamin, then Nickelback. And I was able to have a front row seat at front of house or as Henry, who would let me sit with him at front of house, watch the show, give me tips on live sound and certain things that I want. never he was never bothered by me or anything. I, dude, I was taking notes. I, I got a crash course in rock and roll 101 from that band. And I know they're a roadrunner. And the only other band I would say from that aspect would be Slipknot. You know, especially from the production element of things, not copying anybody, like utilizing it for our own um, designs, but like seeing how they did it. And, you know, who do I talk to? What are these companies? How would I be able to do this? How could I do this? How do you how do you get a stage built? Who do you guys use? Like I was in there, man, asking a lot of questions, taking a lot of notes, writing a lot of names and numbers down, you know, 
because I that's where I wanted to go. You know, so at, during that album, Amaryllis, I, I, I got to, you know, I got an education. What's something about Amaryllis that you like more than any other Shinedown album? I think more than anything, um, you know, I go back to the recording process and, you know, once again, we had talked about this a little while ago, you know, coming out of Sound of Madness and, you know, everything that had happened with that record, you know, before it had even gotten released. And then once it got released and, you know, here's a band that had to fend for every single ounce of attention it got and work its way through 37 months of touring and just grind, 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 grind to come up out of that and then to be able to go into the experience not under any circumstances phoning anything in the complete opposite of phoning something in like really being engaged and locked in but we were a lot more comfortable as a band on Amaryllis like when we went in the studio and we were working with each other because we had just been with each other for three years you know what I mean and we didn't take a lot of time off of uh from when we finished the album cycle, um, which was kind of a storytellers tour that we did. It was called anything and everything. And it was an acoustic um, tour that we did um, that finished out that album cycle for sound of Madison. And we took two months away from one another. And then we were right out in California again together. And it was just kind of like, we can do anything we want. Probably that like where, where everybody else was thinking that we were all freaked out. Like, oh, my God, how are we going to make Sound of Madness Part 2? We weren't like that at all. We were actually the complete opposite. We were, we're not going to make Sound of Madness Part 2. We're going to make whatever this is going to be. And there was a lot of freedom in that and a lot of, um, a lot of gratitude for the people that had stuck with us and believed in us. And um, I just think that we had, um, it was a very freeing experience with Amaryllis where it was we, we didn't feel like we were under a microscope we were just being artists and we were just being musicians and we were a band making a record thanks so much to Brent for taking the time to talk to us about 10 years of Amaryllis Shinedown are on tour all the time and you can follow them on Instagram at Shinedown to see when they're coming close to you next because it's going to be soon. And you can even go on to store.shinedown.com and they do have Amaryllis Anniversary merch, including one that kind of looks like the Roadrunner logo. I'm not trying to snitch or anything. I'm just saying I take it as a personal tribute to me. You can also go to hottopic.com and get a Shinedown shirt that was designed by my man Mark, who also designed the official Meet Meep Pod shirt, which you can get on meetmeep.bigcartel.com. And is the universe that small? No. It just all revolves around Meep. See what I did there? Very cool. You can follow the show on Instagram as well at Meet Meep Pod and let me know what you thought of this episode, what you want to hear next, what you want to hear last. And make sure you check out all the archives because they're evergreen. Terrace. Like where the Simpsons live. And like the band from Jacksonville, Florida. Another band from Jacksonville, Florida? Shine down. It all connects. My name is Ryan Rainbow. This is Meep Meep. And yes, that's the best that I could come up with. Bye! <laughs> <laughs>